well, this, this whole section, which was, which was fairly long, uh, that Josh read for us, actually reflects the next complete narrative unit in the book of 1 Samuel. And, uh, and that actually uh, brings us to, to, our, to our study this morning that is going to end up being split into two parts, as much as I was attempting to do it in one. And I was, I was really proud of myself thinking I was going to get there. In fact, I texted Josh to add through verse 16 of chapter 10 to the reading thinking I was doing really well, but as it turns out, I, I didn't do as well as I'd hoped. Uh, but we are, over the next two weeks, going to take this section. This is a main narrative unit here. We're going to just work our way through verse 24 of chapter 9 this week. Next week, we'll finish up through verse 16 of chapter 10. Uh, but in this narrative unit, which, which starts with uh, Saul leaving home in search of lost donkeys and ends with Saul returning home, uh, not with donkeys, but instead with an anointing as king of Israel, in this section, we have the narrative that introduces us to Saul, who's the king that the people of Israel asked for back in chapter 8. So Saul is the king of the people's asking, or the king of the people's requesting. You remember how we talked about the fact that Saul's name in Hebrew reflects the Hebrew verb to ask. Uh, so, so Saul is the king of the people's asking, and, and, uh, and in this passage, we're, we're introduced to him as he's, as he's uh, anointed as king. Um, so we're going to start to look at this section uh, this morning. Again, we'll finish it out next week. But, but as we do, we're going, to set, we're going to set the context in this way. Uh, as we go through our Christian life, we become very familiar uh, with how fractured things can become. Uh, we understand that because of our own propensities toward folly at times and because of uh, others' activities toward us that can be harmful and damaging, we know all too well that life itself reflects a great deal of fracturing. Uh, there's disorder, how things ought to be often are not how things really are. And along these lines, we know what it is to go in ways that are, that are contrary to God and that actually leave us in, in quite damaged places. But with that, as people who know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, even though fractured realities can be very present because of our sin and for other reasons as well, uh, but while fractured realities are present, we aren't people who are despondent. Instead, we're people who live with great hope. And that's not because we're silly and fail to see the realities for what they are. Uh, but we live with hope because of who God is. We know uh, that the God of the Bible, the one who reveals himself to us through his word and climactically in the person of Christ, we know God to be the one who brings about the fulfillment of his life-giving promises despite the fractured nature of our lives. The, the, the great truth about God's kindness and mercy is that while we can find ourselves quite faithless at times, while we can uh, run in directions that are contrary to God, ultimately for those who are His, the Lord continues to move things along toward the full expression of His promised mercy and grace toward us. Mercy which is, which is climactically sourced, as we know, in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we know that ultimately in Jesus, God brings about the fulfillment of his promises, despite the fractured nature of our lives. And as we come to this section of, of 1 Samuel this morning, it's this amazing reality that's put on display for us. Uh, we remember that Israel has asked for a king back in chapter 8. And, and is, in Israel's request for a king, they have displayed the, what we can call the fractured nature of their own desires. 
Uh, like we saw back in chapter 8, the Lord makes it clear that this request for a king that the people have made, it actually reflects the sin of idolatry in the people's lives. He said they've actually rejected me as their king in the form of their requesting a king like the nations. That's, that's what they desire. They want a king like the nations. So things are fractured. This is an expression of, of sin in the lives of the people of Israel. And yet, as we saw, the Lord still conceded to give them this king of their own asking. So uh, through Samuel, he told, he told the prophet to give the people what they want, give them this king that they want. And in this section, of course, we meet, we meet that king. We're introduced to Saul. And, and what we're helped to see in, in this very extended introduction to King Saul, uh, what we're helped to see is that while the people of God have desires that are contrary to God, in fact, down in verse 20 of this passage, which we will get to this morning, down in verse 20, Samuel actually describes the people's longing for a king with a word that's translated as desire in our in our csb translation or depending on what, what you're reading it's actually the word for covet there so, so so samuel's acknowledging the fact that this reflects a covetous desire in the people's heart something's wrong here but at the same time in this what we'll see is the lord proves to be continually faithful he's not actually done keeping his promises to his people promises uh, which, as we'll see in an amazing way from this chapter, promises uh, which ultimately point forward to uh, not Saul himself, but this better king, ultimately Jesus, who's, who's coming. And so uh, we come to this passage prepared for a very realistic picture of things on the one hand. Uh, the people's desires are not what will make them whole and complete. Saul, as we'll see, isn't the one who can ultimately fulfill their need. Uh, but while those, those uh, distorted desires are reflected here, at the same time, we see expressions of God's extraordinary faithfulness. Uh, so here, once again, we see the Lord proves to be the God who brings about the fulfillment of his promises, despite the fractured nature of our lives, uh, which, which, is, which is the greatest encouragement in the whole world to us, because we know this is what we need. What we need is, is, is not some kind of program that we, can, uh, that we can sign up for just so we can do a little better. What we need is the intervention of God himself to come in and bring about the wholeness uh, that we ultimately long for. And so uh, we get into the text now. You can, you can watch the text. Again, the people wanted a king back in chapter 8. Now in our section, we meet that king of their requesting. Um, and in terms of following along in the study today, we're going to divide verses 1 to verse 14a into two parts or into verse 24 into two parts. The first part is going to be through verse 14a, and we're going to talk there about Saul, who is actually a man of weakness, as we'll see in the text. So Saul, the man of weakness. And then in the rest of verse 14 through 24, we'll look at the Lord's divine prerogative. So Saul, a man of weakness, and then the Lord's divine prerogative. Um, so verses 1 to 14, Saul is a man of weakness. Uh, if you look at the text, you can see that uh, things actually start out in a pretty normal way, just in terms of how character introductions go uh, in, in the Bible. In fact, the character introduction that's here isn't, isn't so different from the way in which Elkanah was introduced back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Remember Elkanah, Hannah's husband. Uh, it's fairly straightforward here. And at least at first pass, this introduction seems to begin in, in what we could describe as a very promising way. So we start in verse 1 by reading about this man from the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Kish, and he has a son named Saul, who is an impressive young man, the text says. In fact, in verse 2, there was no one more impressive among the Israelites than Saul. And then we go on to read that the main impressive quality about Saul is his physical appearance. So, so Saul stood 
a head taller than anyone else in verse 2. Um, and, we, and we read that, especially in the context of knowing Israel has asked for a king. We read that, and things seem to be off to a pretty good start. There's some initial potential for Saul that we see here to be sure. After all, back in chapter 8, what did the people want? Well, the people of Israel, they want a king who's going to be able to, to lead them out into battle in a victorious way. So who better to lead them out into battle than this obvious physical specimen named Saul? He's, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He looks like he, looks like he could uh, be, be a very intimidating uh, leader, leader as, as the people go out into the battle. So things are looking good. We want a king. Here's, here's a man who's striking physically. And not just that, but he actually comes from a family of, of recognized prominence. Uh, his dad is in a good place here. So, so things are looking good. Although we do have one small twinge of concern so far. And that twinge of concern revolves around the fact that Saul is only described uh, by his strapping physicality. When we meet uh, men that God uniquely uses in the Bible, often we read things right away about them. This will come later in, in, in Saul's narrative, and there's reason for that. But, but often right away in, in narrative, like with about, uh, regard to Joseph or David, who are both described as, as, as physically strapping men to a certain degree, we read after their physical description uh, that the Lord was with him. So, so, so they're tall, they're strong, they're handsome, whatever it is, and the Lord was with him. Uh, but the narrator... Uh, doesn't have that here. So that kind of bothers us. Uh, in fact, we're also a little bothered by, by the fact that the only other person in Hebrew narrative to be described by their mere physical prowess is David's wicked usurping son, Absalom, later on. So, so this introduction to Saul is, is nice uh, to, to start things off, but, but it actually does give us pause. And, and actually, it turns out that our hesitation is well-founded because as things get going here in this story that unfolds about this whole uh, lost donkey business, as, as the story unfolds, it turns out Saul is really not that impressive at all. In fact, Saul actually proves to be quite disappointing. And, and we see that play out in a few different ways. So let's, let's just walk through what's going on here. In verse 3, if you look at verse 3, as the narrator begins to unfold this scene, we discover that Saul's dad has had some donkeys go missing. Uh, which, of course, is a, is a pretty big deal because in a, in a primarily agrarian society, to miss a few donkeys would be the equivalent of, of us in a more urban context missing a few paychecks. So it's a big deal that the donkeys are gone. Kish sends Saul, his son, out to find the donkey, sends a servant with him. Um, and, and, and in this quest for the donkeys, a whole bunch is revealed about Saul. So in verse 4, Saul and the servant go out. They traverse the countryside. They're looking all over for the donkeys, but they can't find them anywhere. And then in verse 5, Saul speaks, and he says, let's go back, or my father will quit worrying about the donkeys, start worrying about us, and so on. Now, on this point, you, you, you might have to forgive the literature teacher in me for, for this, but, but there's something that's worth pointing out here, I think, just to keep in mind, and not only for this story, but as we read the narrative of the Old Testament in general, um, this is something that will help us, and it will help us understand this passage. What one facet of Hebrew narrative writing, which as, as I, I've said to you at least, I, I hope you're finding it to be true, is extraordinarily rich. One facet of, of Hebrew narrative writing is usually the first words that are spoken by a character in a story reveal uh, their, their character. So the first words reveal, spoken by some individual reveal what, what they're like. Um, in fact, this is carried over into the New Testament when Matthew, who is the, 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 the Jewish gospel writer, the writer who, who writes a gospel in a true Hebrew style, what are the first words we have spoken by Jesus in Matthew's gospel? 
Well, there spoken by Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, in Matthew's gospel, we're told Jesus says, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. When he's speaking to John the Baptist about his ba- Jesus, why does Jesus come? What do we know about Jesus? First words, he fulfills righteousness. So we see that actually carry over in the New Testament. But, but even in our narrative in 1 Samuel, think back, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, where, where Hannah's husband Elkanah, his first words were compassionate. You remember, Hannah, why are you crying? And as it turns out, Elkanah, he proved to be a little bit dense, but what husband isn't? But he was a, he was a pretty compassionate husband. Uh, Hannah's first words, they reflected her humble and very dependent heart. Her first words are words of prayer. Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction. And that's what was true about Hannah. She was humble, dependent upon the Lord. Uh, the Lord. The priest Eli, who ultimately lacked genuine spiritual insight, we remember that, his first words were directed at Hannah while she prayed. And what did he say? How long are you going to be drunk? What do we know about Eli? He lacks spiritual insight, something that's going to play out in the, in, the, in the remainder of the narrative. Samuel's first words are a response to God. Here I am. And what is Samuel but a faithful prophet of the Lord? So, so this is one of the ways that Hebrew narrative helps us understand the characters of the story and in a very defining way. What they say first indicates something critical about them. And in verse 5, Saul speaks. And what does he say? Come on, let's go back. And Saul's very first words, ultimately, Saul shows that he's lacking. And in this case, he lacks persistence. He's he's impatient, and he quits too soon, which will actually be his final downfall as king, if you remember the whole whole story of of Saul. But but here we see Saul is lacking. He's he's not persistent. He quits too soon. And in fact, as the story unfolds, he lacks a whole bunch of things as this text goes on. So so just watch this. In verse 6, the servant suggests that they go find a man of God, which is a reference to Samuel the prophet. The servant says, let's go find a man of God who can maybe help us which way to go. So maybe the the prophet can help us know which direction to go to find the donkeys. So Saul, there, he not only lacks persistence, but he actually lacks direction. The the servant is the one who has to come in as the the problem solver. He's the visionary of the team. And and then in verse 7, Saul doesn't mind the idea of of going to do that, but he, he lacks a gift. I don't have a gift. We're told it was customary there to bring a prophet a gift when you ask him for help. Verse 7, Saul lacks a gift. Fortunately, guess what? The servant comes through again. The servant has a little bit of silver to bring. And then in verse 10, Saul lacks leadership. He literally says to the servant, what you say is good. Again, just just in terms of thinking of of a son in charge over a father's estate and all of these things, and the servant who's accompanying him, this is really strange. Saul's following the servant's direction. So put this together. Saul, Saul lacks initiative to keep up with his donkey search. His, his servant has to prod him on. Saul lacks direction about what to do next. The servant has to suggest we go see the prophet. Saul lacks a gift for the prophet. The servant has to provide that too. And Saul doesn't demonstrate leadership, but instead he just falls in with the servant's ideas. What you say is good. We'll just do, we'll just do what you're talking about. So Saul is lacking. And then just to punctuate Saul's deficiency, as, as they go to this city, where the, where the man of God is, in verse 11, they meet some young women who are coming out to draw water, and, and Saul and the servant, they ask, is the seer here? Back in verse 9, you remember we're told that, that a seer was an old word for prophet. As time went on, that, that language changed. But So they're asking for the prophet. They're asking for Samuel. And then in a way that scholars point out is, is, is otherwise extremely loose and strangely repetitive for Hebrew narrative, 
these ladies, they give an over-the-top detailed explanation of how Saul can find Samuel. Not, not unlike a description one might give to a very young child when they have a task to undertake. Right? So just look at verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. The women answered, yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat unless he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can, can eat. Go up immediately. You can find him now. So, so, so you get what's going on. You hear the repetitive nature of the directions, the oversimplification of things, the, the nudging and the, the urgency in, in, in the directions. Hurry, go, go up immediately. You can find him now. Go, go, hello, go. Right? Clearly, when they're, they're engaging with Saul, these ladies, they, they, they see that while he might be a tall and handsome fellow, he's just not really all that together. They're picking up on this as he comes up to them. So one scholar um, describes what's going on in this way. Robert Alter is his name, who, who is notably one of the greatest scholars on Hebrew narrative. And, and he, I just read, I'll read you his comment. He says this, the women must, he puts this it's a scholarly way. The women must see evident signs of confusion and incomprehension in Saul's face. And they take elaborate measures to spell out where Samuel is to be found and what Saul should do in order to be sure not to miss him. Right? So, so Saul might, might be a head taller than the rest, but physical features aside, what is Saul? Saul is lacking. He's lacking. He's weak in persistence. He's not a problem solver. He doesn't have a gift that's needed. He, he, he's just following his servant around. And apparently in all this, the women at the well recognize when, they, when, when he walks up and asks them a question, they need to speak really slowly to make sure he gets it. The physically impressive man of verse 2 actually turns out to be a man of significant weakness. And on the one hand, this strikes us as very discouraging. There's, there's fracture here, to use that word we were using earlier, uh, especially if we can just put ourselves in, in idolatrous Israel's place for just a moment. Uh, things are not like we would like them to be. The narrator's letting us in on this. Because what do the people of Israel really want in a king? Well, they've asked for a king who's going to lead them like the nations. More specifically, they've asked for a king who's mighty in battle. And what do we have here? Well, we have a man who's nice and tall, but he can't seem to lead a donkey search, let alone lead people out into battle. So this is a little discouraging. This is the king of the people's asking, and the narrator lets us in on the reality that there's fracture here. Saul is not the man of our dreams we thought he'd be. But this is a critical reminder that when we long for something that we think will fulfill our need apart from God, Remember, this, this king is a product of the people's rejection of God and idolatry back in chapter 8. When we long for something that we think will fulfill our need apart from God, this is a good reminder that no matter how grand those solutions may appear on the outside, no matter how uh, head and shoulders taller those solutions may seem, ultimately, everything else apart from God proves to be lacking. C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity he captures this so well in his chapter on hope. I don't know if you've, if you've read that lately, but it's, it's worth rereading. It's a very short chapter. I'm just going to read you part of what he says, reflecting on this. He's speaking about uh, what we want most as humanity, that thing we want the most. And, and he says this. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you. That is the things we want the most. But they never quite keep their promise. 
The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded. And that's what we're seeing here in Saul. The king of the people is asking, but something has evaded them. here. He's not the fullness of, of what they want. He's head and shoulders above physicality wise. There's something impressive to see there. But when it comes right down to it, he's not the answer. In fact, what, what we're being shown now through the narrative progression is the people have rejected the answer. And Saul, the solution they think they long for, is introduced to us here as, as one who's lacking. There's fracture here. Things aren't whole. But along with that, in Saul's unimpressive introduction, there's also a measure of anticipation regarding the fulfillment of God's purposes. This, this is what's always true for us as God's people. Fracture in our lives is never removed from God's promise-fulfilling kindness, and there are also indicators of that in this text. Saul's weakness here absolutely reflects incompetence. That's clear. But it should also be noted that when God does provide the, 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 the ultimate king that his people really need, weakness is a quality present in the ultimate king. It's, it's, not, it's not the weakness of general incompetence, as in, as in the case of Saul. But we remember the prophet Isaiah's words about the Lord's ultimate anointed one. Isaiah's words fulfilled in, in King Jesus. What does Isaiah say? He was despised, rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So, so we see that even in the, in the fractured condition of Saul's obvious lacking here, there is still a light of hopeful anticipation that's reflecting. We're directed in some measure in what to expect from the king God will ultimately provide. The king will come in weakness, not weakness of, of character and resolve like Saul, but weakness of position. Jesus was born and placed in an animal feeding trough. Weakness of reputation. He was appraised as, as lowly by others. Isn't that just the carpenter's son? Most of all, weakness was reflected in Jesus' ultimate victory. Through the shame of the Roman cross, he brings defeat and wins our freedom and redemption. So, so we recognize that, that two levels of truth are coming at us here. There's, there's fracture represented in Saul's introduction. There's, there's no true relief. Uh, for, for the people in rejecting God as king. Idolatry will not satisfy. That's, that's being made clear here. But there's also an important framework of hope and anticipation that's being developed. We're being trained to expect that God's king may very well come in a way that isn't all that impressive. So as things begin, we're introduced to Saul, a man of weakness. And then we move into the rest of verse 14 through verse 24, and we're told about the Lord's divine prerogative. So that's what we see next, the Lord's divine prerogative. Uh, starting in the second part of verse 14, we read uh, that Saul and his servant are entering the city, and they see Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. So like the woman had told Saul, Samuel was in town to conduct sacrifices. Uh, he's going to the place where that's going to happen. And, and while it might seem like Saul and his servant have, have kind of bumbled into this encounter with Saul, what we actually discover is 
is that this encounter is a result of the Lord's orchestrating purposes all along. So in verses 15 and 16, we're actually told that, that the day before all this is going to, going to happen, God had already told Samuel that Saul was going to come. God had already told Samuel, this is coming. And, and God said that the man who comes is to be the one Samuel anoints as ruler over the people. That This is the king the people wanted. But again, the Lord's hand is not removed from this in the least. But what comes through so clearly here is, 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 is the, the apparent random donkey problem and all this bringing Saul to Samuel, this, this is taking place according to God's own timing. He told Samuel yesterday they'd be showing up today. So God's hand is in all of this. And here's the amazing thing in verse 16. The Lord tells Samuel that he's doing this. He's providing Saul as king in order to bring his people salvation from the Philistines because he's seen their affliction and their cry has come to him. Now, that means the Lord is going to be doing quite a bit in Saul, as we would expect needs to happen, which we'll see in the, in the, in the remaining part of the narrative. But, but we, just, we just think about this kind of language here. The Lord is going to bring his people salvation from the Philistines because he's seen their affliction and their cry has come to him. That kind of language isn't unfamiliar to us. That kind of language re reflects, for example, the, the Exodus account where the Lord hears the cries of his people and brings them deliverance from Egypt. And then back in, in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the people ask Samuel to cry out for the Lord, to the Lord for them because the Philistines are going to be attacking them. So they say, cry out to the Lord for us. And what does the Lord do? Well, he answers their cry for help and he brings them deliverance mightily in, in chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, they reject the Lord. And the Lord says there, do you remember what he says? He says that because they've rejected him, he will be silent when they cry out to him, which ultimately points forward to their experience of exile, that their, their cries are very much depicted in Jeremiah's lamentations, that there will come a day when the Lord will give his people over to, to the curses of their covenant breaking, that day will come. But just here, we're reminded of the fact that though the Lord will bring his disciplining hand upon his people, he's also the God who never ultimately forsakes them. Even immediately after they've proved the fracture of their own hearts. So immediately after they have rejected God and engaged in this idolatry, wanting a king like the nations, what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord responds to their need in this appointment of Saul. As imperfect and tragic as Saul and the people all may be, he'll provide for their deliverance which is such an important word for us, just as we take into account the character of God in the midst of our own folly. There's extraordinary hope in this. Because we're familiar with the fractured nature of our motives and ambitions and desires. We, we can identify with Israel and their temptations to idolatry. We're aware of our willingness to indulge things that are contrary to God himself and the disasters that that can bring, not least of all the offenses to God that all of those things represent. But according to God's divine prerogative and God's clear purpose and providence that's so evidenced in this section, those things that might otherwise separate us from God do not ultimately have the final word. But instead, the Lord is so redemptively potent, if we can put it that way. He's so redemptively potent. He's so patient. He's so full of kindness that he can actually use those things that, re that reflect the greatest folly in our lives to help bring us the deliverance that we desperately need. How amazing is that? The king that reflects the people's idolatry 
will be used by God to bring about their deliverance from the Philistines. Like Joseph says to his brother at the end of the Joseph narrative in Genesis chapter 50, you evil brothers intended this for evil. God intended this for good. God's meticulous purposes play out exactly as he graciously determines. And just like he told Samuel yesterday, Saul showed up today, and this is the king for my people because I'm going to use him to bring them relief. Verse 17, Saul shows up and the Lord says to Samuel, here's the man I told you about. The, the, the providences of God for his people, the ordering of events and circumstances by God for his people are always laced with mercy despite our contrary heart which should be an enormous encouragement to us. It's an enormous encouragement to me. This is, this is the amazing grace that we sing about. And, th and then we just see this continue to play out in the rest of this section where God's divine prerogative shines through all that's here and is ultimately going to give us a wonderful picture. So just, just keep working through this interaction here. Um, th this, this whole incident with Saul isn't a matter of happenstance because some donkeys went missing. God's purposes are in this. Verse 17, Saul walks up. The Lord indicates to Samuel, this is who I was talking to you about yesterday when I was telling you about all this. Verse 18, Saul comes up to Samuel, has no clue who he is. Doesn't really surprise us, given what we know so far about, about Saul. Uh, he asks, where's the seer's house? The ladies, you remember, they told him he was actually just in town for the sacrifice. Uh, Saul must have missed that bit because he thinks he lives there. So there's already, there's confusion still represented. Samuel says, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. And then he proceeds to give Saul a bunch of directions. He tells him to go up ahead to the high place because they're going to eat together. He tells him that in the morning, he'll make things more clear to Saul. I'm going to tell you about this a little later. Right now, you just worry about doing the next thing. Right? And then he says that, that the donkeys have been found. So just to put a little punctuation mark on the fact that God is revealing things to Samuel. There he is, removed from the whole context of the donkey search. Saul hasn't even talked to him about these things yet. And he says, don't worry, the donkeys have been found. Punctuates Samuel's uh, divine knowledge there. And then in verse 20, Samuel says, and who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? And this is the interesting place where Samuel uses a word that, that has its root in, in, the, in the word for covet. Who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? He's indicating that all Israel wants Saul to be the king. There's a little nod to the idol problem here with that word covet. But in this, as, as dim as Saul has appeared at times, Saul actually seems to pick up what Samuel's saying because he's, he's shocked and he's, and he's humbled by the implications of this statement. He gets that he's, he's the one Israel wants for their king. In verse 21, he says, am I not a Benjamite, the smallest of, of uh, Israel's tribes and so on? Why have you said something like this to me? And interestingly, Samuel doesn't respond. He'd already told him he was going to talk to him about more stuff tomorrow. He doesn't respond here. Instead, he takes Saul and the servant and brings them to the banquet hall. So he brings them to the place where the, where the portions from the sacrifice are going to be eaten. And in verse 23, Samuel says to the cook, he says, get the portion of meat that I gave you and told you to set aside. So again, Samuel's already been prepared for this by the Lord. This is all, all orchestrated. Um, another indicator that, that Saul's not wandering aimlessly in all this. The Lord's making things clear. There's divine appointment here. And in verse 24, the cook gives the thigh to Saul. And Samuel draws attention to the fact that it's the reserved piece of meat that Saul's getting and that this is a solemn event in verse 24. Which we read this and we think, well, huh. What in the world? What is this about? What, 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 what impact at all does this have on the story? But we need to understand this well. Because under Levitical law, 
you, you, you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 7. Under Levitical law, Saul was receiving the portion of the sacrifice that was meant only for the priest who's offering the sacrifice and the priest's family. And this will become very important in the section we study next week, too. It's going to come up again, and we'll talk about it more. But in this, Samuel is indicating that Saul's participating in the priestly meal, and he's being included in Samuel's family. Just one little other indicator of this family switch. It's interesting that, that, that his dad gets more worried about him towards the end of the narrative. But who comes out to meet him when he gets home? His uncle. There's going to be a little family dynamic switch here. So Samuel is indicating that Saul's participating in a priestly way, but also being brought into his family. Um, and, and, and so this is one of those places where we start to see that Saul, who the Lord has said will be anointed as ruler, back in verse 16, Saul is now participating in a priestly meal. And in that, there's an indicator that he's also brought into the prophet's family. So if you remember from what Josh read, that's, that's going to come up again. Uh, so, so, so again, we'll talk more about this next time, but we put together all that's going on here, and a lot is being revealed about the kingship of Israel at the beginning of the monarchy here, and, and especially how God is working to bring about his purposes among his people. So, so the people have asked for a king, which is an idolatrous desire on their part in this way, but in the purposes of God, he speaks to Samuel and says, the man's going to come, I'm going to use him to deliver my people. And the man who comes is ultimately indicated, not just as the anointed king, but there's also a connection between the office of priest and prophet as well, which again directs our anticipation in a way that's very hopeful. Remember, in the beginning of all this, this all started with Israel feeling their need. Samuel, we were told Samuel's getting older. Samuel's kids are fouling out. They can't trust Samuel's boys to carry on any kind of leadership legacy in Israel. So Sam, uh, the people of Israel are feeling their need, as idolatrous as their request and all this is. But what the Lord does is he shows that he's the provider of not just a king like they want, but he's providing one who is a king in the line of the prophets and priests. These offices are all coming together, in a sense, in the, in the beginning of the monarchy. He provides completely for his people. He's got one who accomplishes sacrifices, a priest, one who brings the word of the Lord, that's a prophet, and one who leads his people to victory, which is a king. Now, interestingly, Saul will prove to be an abysmal failure in all these categories. Right? He fails to pay attention to the word of the Lord. That's a failure in the prophetic category. He uh, offers sacrifices in a disobedient way as a failure in the, in the priestly category. And, and he isn't ultimately victorious in battle, but his final day will be death on the battlefield. So, so he fails as, as king. However, amid the fracture, we have this anticipation of God's final fulfillment. And in, in this, we see a picture of God's anticipated appointment, God's divine appointment of, of Jesus as our deliverer. Because as we keep looking forward in history from this point in Samuel uh, toward the fullness of time, according to the foreknowledge and plan of God, as we read in the New Testament, according to God's divine prerogative, what do we have? Well, Jesus will come and he'll prove to be the prophet who reveals God perfectly to us. He's the priest who offers himself sufficiently and completely as a sacrifice for our sins, cleansing us. And he's the king who provides eternal deliverance. He's the one who conquers death. So, so we see that, that even in the fractures represented here in Saul and in the people of Israel, amid the disregard for the Lord and the dimness of the people, the Lord's program is not only moving forward, 
but is moving forward with glimpses of fullness all along. And while this is climactically true in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus, we need to see that this climax we're pointing forward to is a climax that extends to the people of God. The climactic reality of who Jesus is and what he's done extends to us. Just as Saul will be ultimately a deficient deliverer for God's people, we see the king is the king for the people. The prophet, priest, and king is going to come with wholeness, for uh, bringing wholeness to the to the people of God. So, so, so the fracturing is there. We see that. We see that even in our own lives. Very much the fracturing is there. The failure is there. The dimness is there. The idolatry is there. But the redemptive, divinely ordained, uh, kind and gracious purposes of God are always also still there climactically for us through Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the grace of God wins in our lives. And we just need to be reminded of that. So, so, so because of Jesus, the sin and disorder, the fractured hearts and lives aren't the final word. Saul is not our king. They would be the final word if Saul was our king. But Saul's not our king. We have, we have the better king. Because of Jesus' victory, we will be raised in glory. Because of Jesus' victory, we will not be down ultimately uh, in, in a kind of place of defeat. But instead, we will be raised to a place of victory. It's interesting, all through this chapter, many times uh, we have the repeated word up. Saul uh, goes up to the city in verse 11. Saul goes up to the high place in verse 14. He goes up to the head of the table, verse 22. He'll go up to the roof down in verse 25. And when we start seeing something like that in the narrative, we pay attention to it. And we recognize that ultimately we're being shown something. here. Because even though we kind of go down in disappointment with Saul when things begin, Ultimately, we see that God is the one who raises up his king. God is the one who elevates uh, the king who's going to be uh, the rescuer and the deliverer of his people. The Lord's king will rise. And ultimately, this points forward to the fact that the people will rise too. The Lord's king brings the relief that the people enjoy. And ultimately, and this is our hope, because, because fractured lives never overwhelm the fulfillment of God's life-giving grace. And we can get to points in, in our life where we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes life is going on okay, and we're, and, we're, and we're comfortable with the grace of God. We feel dependent upon Him for sure and those kinds of things. But then there are those times where the fractures in our life can be overwhelming to us. And not only do we need to be able to look at the sufficiency of Christ and realize that despite those things, in spite of those things, the Lord is still bringing about wholeness for me through Jesus. But we also need to be able to say, this isn't as much about me as I might think it is. This is actually something the Lord has been doing all along. This is something the Lord has been promising all along to do for his people. So the grace I know I'm experiencing, while I may not feel it, I'm helped to... Uh, get that deep down in my heart as I recognize that I am a corporate participant in it. This is not something that I can be removed from because this is something that God brings all his people into as the one who ultimately brings us to a place of rest and peace through Jesus. And sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of that because the fractures can seem overwhelming and the fulfillment can start getting dim. But we need to see that even in this, the Lord is not separated from us. But in fact, as redemptive history proves, he's actually working. And he's working for our good because of Jesus. And so we're thankful for that. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would, uh, like we said from the beginning, have eyes to see your truth. 
Uh, we, we want to be seers of your good way. We pray that you would reveal it to us, reveal it to our hearts. Father, give us rest in knowing the climactic realities of what you've accomplished through Jesus. We're thankful for him. We submit ourselves to him as our ultimate king and thank you that he is perfect without error, entirely sufficient and complete. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.